0: From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. Today, country music star Tim McGraw. He's been making top-selling albums since the 90s, and lately his acting is getting attention. He stars with his wife Faith Hill in the Western TV series 1883. McGraw will tell us about learning at age 11 that his real father wasn't the truck driver his mom had divorced, but a famous athlete, big league pitcher Tug McGraw. Also, we hear from CNN international anchor Zane Asher. When she was five, living with her family in London, her mother got a call informing her that her husband and son, on a road trip in Nigeria, had been in a terrible car accident. She was told her husband or her son had survived, but the caller didn't know which. That story opens Asher's new memoir, which is largely about her mother's remarkable life. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, and for Terry Gross. Our first guest, Tim McGraw, has been one of the biggest stars in country music for years. But lately, it's an acting role that's getting a lot of attention. He stars with his wife, singer Faith Hill, and Sam Elliott in the Western TV series on Paramount Plus called 1883. It tells the story of a large group of Eastern European immigrants trying to make their way in covered wagons from Texas to Oregon to start new lives. They know little about horses, wagons, or America, and they're led in the journey by experienced cowboys, including the characters played by Elliot McGraw, and LaMonica Garrett, all veterans of the Civil War. The pioneers face every conceivable hardship and plenty of tragedy, realistically depicted in the production which the cast shot on location over five months in Texas and Montana— The series is a prequel to the successful Paramount Plus series Yellowstone, which is about the descendants of McGraw's character in modern day Montana. All 10 episodes of 1883 are available for streaming. McGraw's previous acting roles include parts in the movies Friday Night Lights, The Blind Side, and Country Strong. Tim McGraw has been recording number one country albums since 1994 and has won three Grammys and 14 Academy of Country Music Awards. He's also a celebrated performer. His tours with Faith Hill have been some of the biggest grossing tours in country music history. And he's also the son of the late Major League pitcher Tug McGraw, though he didn't connect with his father until late in his childhood. Well, Tim McGraw, welcome to Fresh
1: Air. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me.
0: This uh, series, 1883, is a story about these immigrants, as I mentioned, most of whom don't speak English and in some cases can't speak to each other. Um, and those who agree to lead them on this dangerous journey, the characters of Sam Elliott and LaMonica Garrett, who, uh, who's a black cowboy. Your character, James Dutton, is a little different from those two. You want to describe him, what his role is?
1: Yeah, James um, comes from Tennessee, and he was planning on on making this journey alone with his family. You know, right from the beginning when you see James, and he's, he's trying to get to Fort Worth to get supplied and everything, bringing everything they had from Tennessee and get set to go on their trip. Um, he, he's, he's already in a gunfight getting chased by bandits, and, you know, he shoots six people right in the first couple of <laughs> scenes, scenes of the show just to show the danger that he was in. He suffered. He was trying to outrun Ghost in a lot of ways, I believe. Um, he was in the Civil War. It was a war he didn't believe in, and certainly everything that was going on, you know, during Reconstruction and, and after Reconstruction and how terrible things had gotten after the war, and uh, I think he was just trying to find a clean place that was unsoiled by everything that he had gone through and everything that he knew for his family, and a place that he could feel like that he'd gotten past all of that.
0: You, you know, as I, as I watched, and I wanted to keep in mind scenes that I could use in our interview. Uh, one of the things I noticed is that he's a man of relatively few words. There's not a lot of long monologues.
1: <laughs> right, right. Thank goodness. No, <laughs> yeah. no. He, he's you know he's he's certainly. Uh, terse and to the point when he, when he, when he has something to say, he doesn't mess around and he, he's not a, some big poetic speaker. He talks the most to his wife and his daughter for sure. And his main concern is, is, is the safety of his family. Um, and that's why ultimately I think after a few things that happened, you know, his, his daughter is attacked and almost raped by a drunk guy. And, he ends up shooting that guy, and I, and I think it, it, he starts to realize what he's really gotten himself into, and what he's gotten his family into, and and that's the point that he decides to sort of team up with with uh, Sam and care characters and help this wagon train. And I, and I think as the as the show develops, you you see everybody has different arcs in the show, which I think which makes the character arcs in the show, which makes it so interesting when you how you see everyone change, and I think you start seeing the concern and, and the care that James starts taking with, with everybody in the wagon train, not just his family.
0: Right. They're all together. Well, I want to listen to a scene, and, and this will take just a little bit of setup here. I mean, this is after your 18-year-old daughter, Elsa, had she'd fallen in love with one of the cowboys on the drive, and then he was killed when the group was attacked by bandits. Elsa sees this, sees him die, and then in her fury— shoots and kills the one bandit who was captured alive and was being held by two members of the party. Uh, After that, she is in a trading post a few days later, and a guy gives her a salacious stare. She pulls a weapon, nearly shoots him, and you as as her dad are concerned about her being caught up in this rage. So what we hear is it's nighttime. Elsa is on her horse watching the cattle, this 18-year-old daughter of yours, and you ride up to give her a life lesson about violence and hate. Uh, and in, in doing it, you refer to your experience in the Civil War. Let's listen.
1: I'm going to tell you a story. You're going to listen. I think I've earned that right. Hope I have. And listen. First man I killed... Hmm. It's was just a boy, younger than you. The reason companies have flag bearers is so soldiers know to stay with their group. And generals on the hill can track the progress of the battle. So much dust and smoke and battle. Fighting in a fog, it's hard to make out the enemy can't tell your man from theirs. But you can always look up and see the flags. So we shoot flag bearers first. And I did. That boy's face was burned in my brain. The whole world seemed to stop as this boy's looking right at me. By the end of the battle, I... I killed so many men. I couldn't remember what that boy looked like. Still can't. That man you shot was already dead. Whether we hanged him or he bled out. It's time when this earth was done. You did not kill him. Understand? Meanest thing you can do to yourself is hate somebody else. I know what it feels like to hate the world. You don't want to feel it, honey. Be sad, miss him. Self-blind, you leave hating to me.
0: And that's our guest, Tim McGraw, in the Paramount Plus series "1883," giving his daughter a life lesson. Um, it's a powerful scene, and I'd say, I have to say, beautifully written by Taylor Sheridan, who did the did the screenplay.
1: Absolutely. I mean, he the writing in this entire script was just part of what drew Faith and I in and, and so be so passionate about all the actors we were so passionate about the writing and the storytelling that um it, it just every day we all showed up and just really wanting wanted to live up to the, what Taylor had written and what the script says and how great it was because it was it had those all those beautiful moments and it had tons of those kinds of moments i mean that moment right there you just played i mean it hits me it was hitting me hard just listening to it i'd never just really listened to it i'd only seen it when we finished the show but uh it uh, it it's full. The whole series is, is full of moments like that in the writing. It's certainly, and the narration of our daughter Elsa, she narrates the entire show, and her narration is is pure poetry throughout the entire show.
0: You know, you've had several movie roles before. Did you take acting lessons to have it?
1: I'm I didn't. I, I probably should, <laughs> <laughs> but it's probably too late now. Um, no, I didn't. You know, and you know, I. I always loved movies as a kid, and you know, did it like every kid did a couple of plays and stuff like that when you're a kid. Um, but I was always an athlete, so that was really warm up where my focus was at. But um, and then when you know when I, when I started having some hit records, you know, then those offers start coming to you and. and and I was interested in doing movies. I always was interested in it, but my biggest fear was so. I, and I didn't do one for a long, long time. My biggest fear was: look, I've got success here, and the worst thing I can do is go be bad at something else and then ruin the success that I have over here. So it took me a long time to, to actually find something. I mean, I read a lot of scripts, but it just—I never could make myself pull the trigger until I read Friday Night Lights and. Uh, and uh, just I just instantly when I read it, it's like I know that guy, I I know that character.
0: You grew up in Louisiana, you mentioned, and your stepfather, who was the guy you you thought was your father as you grew up, was a, a truck driver, right? A cowboy.
1: Uh, cowboy truck driver, yeah. Tough. I mean, tough guy, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, they split when you were about ten. Now, you know, people who know you know that you're in, in fact the biological child of Tug McGraw. Uh, the major league pitcher who pitched for the Mets, Mets and Phillies, brought a championship, helped bring the championship to the Philadelphia in, in
1: 1980.
0: How did you learn that he was you know, actually your dad?
1: Uh, you know, it was it was totally by accident. You know, my my stepdad and my mom divorced, and we had just moved, and in, in a uh, I guess it was about six months after the divorce, we were. Maybe a little longer than that. Uh, you know, it's hard to get time right. But we'd moved in with my grandparents for a little while. Then we finally moved into a house in rural Louisiana. And I was going through a closet for some reason. And I found a box. And when I opened the box, my birth certificate was in the box. And everything was printed out on it, except for the last name. It just There was just one line through it in pen, in handwritten ink pen, just one line, and then Smith written in cursive above it. But it had my dad's full name. It said his occupation was professional baseball player. And it was you know it was pretty much a shock <laughs> when, when you find something like that. And I thought there had to have been some sort of mistake. And oddly enough, I had three baseball cards on my wall. Um, I can't remember the first one. One was Cesar Cedeno, and the third one was Tug that I had up on my wall because he was one of my favorite players, believe it or not. And, and I don't know that that was something that my mom subconsciously pointed him out to me or if I just, he just became a favorite player. I don't know how that happened. He just, you know, but he was a lot of kids' favorite player back then because he was such a character.
0: I mean, the story I guess is that, you know, he was a minor league baseball player in Jacksonville, Jacksonville, Florida in 1967. And he had a relationship with your mom who was, I guess, still in high school then. And uh, you were the result and uh, he moved on, she moved on. Um, um, What was it like when you met for the first time?
1: Well, it was it was unusual for sure. Um, what did you know? My mom she didn't finish her senior year because she had gotten pregnant with me. So, sort of the family in Florida sent her to Louisiana to to live with relatives, and I was born in Louisiana. Um, but after I found my birth certificate, I called my mom. Um, she was at work, and I asked her what it was. This was all about, and she, you could just feel an audible gasp and, and heart fa- failure, you know, from her when, when I told her and she said, I'll be right home. And she got home and we, she said, let's go for a ride. And we got in the car and we just drove around and she told me the whole story. Um, she didn't say anything, tell him that she was pregnant. Um, she moved to Louisiana on the day I was born. My grandmother called and actually called and got him in the Mets, dugout. <laughs> and just to say that, just to tell him I was born, and that was it. That was the only communication he ever had. And so, when I found the birth certificate, I just told Mom that I wanted to meet him, as any kid would. And um, she got in touch with his lawyer, I believe, and said that I'd found out. So, Mom borrowed a car, because she didn't have a car that can make it, and we drove to Houston. And he left us a couple tickets, and um, we got to go into the game bef- before much batting practice. And I remember th- tossing the ball with him a little bit, um, watching batting practice, and I remember he gave up a grand slam when he came in at the game I saw. Maybe I only a little saw distracted. <laughs> yeah, but I only saw him pitch twice. And that w- that was the first year. So we had a lunch, and he goes, you know, we can be friends, but you know i, I don't know if I 'm your dad or not i don't you know i'm not sure about any of that, but you know we can be friends so I left um the next year I wanted to go back and see him and of course mom being a good great mom, she arranged to get tickets, and we drove to Houston again and i had she had got me a McGraw shirt with, with Philly's colors and had the name on the back and his number and everything, so I was wearing that and he was. In the bullpen and back then at the Astrodome, with a warm up spot where the, they would throw at the bullpen, you could go right up next to it. And um, I remember going over and walking and standing right in front of him and yelling, Tay Tug, and just tell him I'm back. I'm going to see it. See, and he ignored me the whole time, and that was the last time I saw him.
0: Oh, gosh. Well, we need to take another break here. Let me reintroduce you. We are speaking with country singing star Tim McGraw. He stars with his wife, Faith Hill, in the new Paramount Plus Western series, 1883. We'll continue our conversation after this short break, and we'll hear from CNN international anchor Zane Asher. Her new memoir tells the story of her mother, an immigrant from Nigeria who survived poverty, famine, and civil war before coming to England to raise four children in a crime-ridden London neighborhood. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc. 92% of people who have used Teladoc have seen an improvement in their mental health. Teladoc's online therapy offers access to licensed therapists right from your phone. Get help with anxiety, stress, depression, and more. Choose the right therapist for your needs with sessions wherever you're the most comfortable. Download the app or visit teladoc.com freshair. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross, and we're speaking with country music star Tim McGraw, who's also had several acting roles. He stars with his wife, Faith Hill, along with Sam Elliott and LaMonica Garrett, in the new Paramount Plus TV Western series, 1883. It's the story of some veteran cowboys leading a group of Eastern European immigrants hoping to get from Texas to Oregon by horse and wagon. All ten episodes are available for streaming. When we left off, McGraw told us how he'd learned at the age of 11 that his real father wasn't the truck driver his mom had divorced, but a famous athlete, big league pitcher Tug McGraw. Tim met Tug McGraw after that discovery, but it didn't lead to an ongoing relationship. You did connect later on when you were like 18 or so, I guess, right?
1: Yeah. When I was 18 I graduated high school, I'd had a few scholarship offers nothing major. you know. I was a, wasn't was the biggest kid in the world, but I was a good athlete. But um, I knew mom was going to have trouble paying for college. And so I asked mom, I said, you need to get in touch with Tug's attorney and find out about getting college paid for, or at least helping us pay for college, because I don't want to put that burden on you. And she kept trying and kept trying and kept getting the run around, kept getting the run around, kept getting the run around. And then Right before I ran on the field for my last high school football game, she stops me right, you know, right before you run through the paper sign, you know, when you're all jacked up. She stops and she goes, I got papers from Tug's lawyer today. And I'm like, oh gosh, don't tell me this right before a football game, (laughs) my last high school football game. So I ran out, at least I had a good game that night and got home and read the papers and it had agreed to just a minimal amount of money and helping just a little bit. But I could, I never could use the name and I couldn't, ever make contact with him again. And I'd looked at Mom and I says, all right I'll sign all of this but he has to see me one more time And uh, so they agreed that we would meet one more time and then that we would sign the contract and I'd be out of his life forever. And so we drove again to Houston. So he hadn't seen me since I was 11 years old and I remember walking into the lobby of the hotel and I was the same height as him at that point. And my mom pointed and said, there he is right there. So I just walked right over and tapped him on the shoulder and he turned around. And, uh, the first thing that I noticed more than anything was his lawyer's jaw hit the ground because we looked almost exactly alike. So it was like, he was like, oh my God, we're screwed. <laughs> and so we talked and, um, we spent the day together, had dinner that night. And, um, I, uh, Mom and I and he were having dinner, and I asked Mom if she would mind letting Tug and I talk for a, minute, uh, a moment alone, and, and she wasn't too sure about that, and, and I told her that it was okay, it was fine. And so she got up and left, and I just looked him in the eye. and says, look, as far as I'm concerned, this dinner's over. This, uh, all this mess is over with. I'm going to sign your contract. I just want you to answer one question. Do you think you're my dad? And he says, I know I am. And I said that was all I needed to know. And, um, and then he said, we're going to tear the contract up and so i we did
0: wow you know i i've seen in a documentary about your life tug mcgraw describing that moment i think it's the same moment and when he he can barely say he wanted to know can i call you dad that's what i think he remembers you saying and it choked him up um you developed a, a real relationship, and unfortunately, he died young from brain cancer when he was just 49. 59, um, 59, yeah. Was that right? 59. That's right. Same age my dad died, right? Um, one of the things that's interesting about this to me is that you know the odds of two people – you know, who share genes, both being really successful in two different fields are pretty remote. And one thing you can see about Tug McGraw as a pitcher that everybody that watched him was that he wasn't just a great athlete. He was a performer. He, was, he brought a lightness to it. I mean, he, you know, just lifted people's spirits and joked a lot. And I, there's, there was something about him, I think, that was an entertainer too.
1: Yeah, you know, he brought a boyish enthusiasm to the game. Like, he he made you feel like every little kid that falls in love with the game from the beginning. And, and he always had that sort of love and that sort of vibrance about baseball. And uh, he was just such a fan of the sport and so grateful to the sport and always had such a love for it.
0: Did you feel that you had the relationship that you wanted before he died?
1: I wouldn't say that we had a father-son relationship. Um, if we did, it was more me being the father than him being the son. If we had a father-son relationship at all, we got close. We were good friends. I mean, his older brother, my uncle Hank, we're close to this day. Um, and my two brothers that live in Philly from Tug, we have all have different mothers, but we're we're close. And my sister Carrie, who's Tug's daughter, we're close. So everybody's close. Um, and we got close. You know, when he was dying, I spent a lot of time with him. He wanted to come to a cabin on our farm. And that's where he wanted to spend his last days. And so we got to hang out with him and spend a lot of time with him. I think the biggest, if you can call it regret, that I have is the time that we got to spend together as he was dying. I, I sort of waited for him to say something about the whole situation. Some sort of just um, have a conversation about it. And we, we never had that conversation. So I'll, I'll always sort of feel like I missed that part of it.
0: Well, Tim McGraw, it's been fun. Thanks so much for speaking with us.
1: My pleasure. Good talking to you. Country
0: music star Tim McGraw stars with his wife, country singer Faith Hill, in the new Paramount Plus TV Western series, 1883. All 10 episodes are available for streaming. Raising children presents dilemmas for parents. To name one, how tough should you be if your kids are wasting too much time on television instead of doing their schoolwork? Imagine taking scissors and cutting the power cord of the TV set and telling your daughter she can watch television again when she's earned admission to Oxford University. It's a true story, told in the new memoir by our next guest, CNN international anchor Zane Asher. She was born in London to parents who were immigrants from Nigeria, and much of her book is about her mother, who overcame poverty, famine, and civil war in Nigeria before raising four children in a struggling neighborhood in London. Asher's early childhood was interrupted by a devastating family tragedy, which you'll soon hear about. Her mother then went to extraordinary lengths to give her children the skills, resilience, and determination to be successful in life, and they were— one became a doctor, another a businessman, and Asher's brother is Chuatel Edgefor, the actor nominated for an Oscar for his role in 12 Years a Slave. Zane Asher is a graduate of Oxford and the Columbia School of Journalism. She currently hosts the CNN international program One World with Zane Asher, which airs weekdays at noon. Her new memoir is Where the Children Take Us. Zane Asher, welcome to Fresh Air.
2: Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here.
0: Your story begins with the tragedy that befell your family when you were just five years old. Uh, you were living in London with your mom and dad and two older brothers. Give us just a little bit of the circumstances of your family life there in London at the time.
2: My parents, as you mentioned, were immigrants from Nigeria at the time of the tragedy. They'd lived in London for about eighteen years. And you know they were struggling. My dad was a trainee doctor on his way to becoming fully qualified. My mom ran a pharmacy in a neighborhood known as Brixton, which in the eighties was quite a difficult neighborhood. It was certainly beset by poverty and crime at the time. And so, you know, the book starts with pretty much the worst day in my family's life, September, 1988. And my mother is in the living room. She's sort of going between the living room and the kitchen she's waiting for a phone call and then she gets that phone call and the voice on the other end of the line basically says, your husband and your son have been involved in a car crash. One of them is dead and we don't know which one. And you can imagine just the level of not just devastation and gut-wrenching pain, but I don't think there's another way to describe it other than a sort of emotional earthquake, you know. turned out my father had passed away in this car crash. My father and brother won on a road trip in Nigeria because my dad just wanted to give my brother a better sense of who he was, um, our heritage, and culture. And um, you know, he lost his life that way. So,
0: so your mom, the the information she gets in this call is that you know your son and and your husband have been in this terrible car crash. One has died. One has survived. We don't know which. And she has to travel 4,000 miles uh, to find out. Um, One can only imagine the terror and panic of such a journey. Uh, She figures out a way to to have somebody care for the kids. She goes through this long journey and finally enters a hospital. What does she discover?
2: That journey was such a painful and difficult one because, as you mentioned, my mother traveled to Nigeria really without knowing who she was going to be burying in her family that week, whether it was going to be her husband or her son. My father and brother were travelling on the road from Enugu, which is where we're from, to Lagos, which is like the sort of biggest city in Nigeria. And on the road to Lagos, their car was hit by a speeding tractor trailer. And initially, everybody, um, talking about bystanders and the authorities, thought that everyone had died in the crash instantly. But then, you know, my family in the village, my Nigerian family in the villages had heard that everybody was killed. And then they had heard after that, that no, 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 maybe one had survived. We're not sure. Maybe there was somebody that survived. We think the little boy had survived. And so there was so much confusion. And because the authorities thought that everyone had passed away instantly, everybody from the scene of the crash was taken to a morgue. And it was only when... my my father and my brother were taken to the morgue that the driver sort of opened the back of the truck and began unloading the bodies that he realized that my brother was still breathing and so my mother arrives in this hospital in Nigeria um, and it was just such a difficult moment because on the one hand yes her son has been spared yes her son is alive but on the other hand she's now having to plan a funeral for you know the love of her life. And this
0: remarkable detail of your brother being discovered uh, when people were taking bodies out of the the, the the wagon at the morgue and discovered one of them breathing—that eleven-year-old kid was Chiwetel Ejiofor, the actor who so many of our listeners, I'm sure, have seen in the films. Um, so, so she goes through this funeral, which was a huge thing in Nigeria. It must have been emotionally numb and. And then she returns to London and leaves her eleven-year-old son there, still recuperating in a hospital. Goes back where there, you're there. You're five. Your older brother is about fourteen or so, right? Um, uh, what's what is your mom like when she returns initially?
2: So um, for the longest time, she locked herself in her bedroom, um, really finding it difficult to leave, fun, finding human interaction quite difficult um, she's obviously just, um, emotionally broken as a person. So sometimes she would come out of her bedroom once a day, maybe twice a day. She would make sure we had something to eat. And then she would go back into her bedroom, lock the door and just cry and cry and cry and cry for hours um, at a time. And, um, even when she eventually went back to work, it was sort of the same thing. She would be serving customers. She ran a pharmacy and she would emerge, you know, into the sort of bathroom she had out back and just cry. And you know, people would walk into this shop that was unmanned and there was sort of no pharmacist to help them, um, because my mother would be, you know, out, out the back crying. She just, I mean, my dad was really everything to her. They, it was she was he was really the only sort of man she'd ever held hands with, only man she'd ever kissed. You know, they met when she was fourteen. And so they had planned their entire lives together. They really were the loves of each other's lives. So it was not just, yes, her partner and her husband and the father of her children, but it was really her everything. And so broken is how I would uh, describe it, um, her emotionally at that point.
0: Zane Asher is an anchor for CNN International. She hosts the program One World with Zane Asher, which airs weekdays at noon. Her new memoir is Where the Children Take Us. We'll continue our conversation after a break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. We're speaking with CNN international anchor Zane Asher about her new memoir, which tells the story of her mother, an immigrant from Nigeria who survived poverty, famine, and civil war before coming to England. She lost her husband in a traffic accident when Zane was five and managed to raise four children herself in a crime-ridden London neighborhood. She was tough at times, but all four children got good educations and did well. Asher's brother is the actor Chiwetel Ejiofor. She hosts the program One World with Zane Asher, which airs weekdays at noon. Her new memoir is Where the Children Take Us. So a- after your father was killed in Nigeria and your mother was simply shattered by it, your grandmother came to stay and just help out with taking the children because it was clear she needed some help. Your older brother, uh, you describe, you know, began acting out, you know, hanging out on the streets, getting into trouble, was actually eventually expelled from school. And there came a point where your mom somehow turned to face the world. Um, do you know what allowed her to do that?
2: I mean, I think it was just this idea that you know, her family was coming apart, you know, most of the time she had no idea where my oldest brother was. Um, And he used to be a brilliant student. Before my father passed away, I mean, this is a kid that was getting awards at his school um, for best in math or best in science. And to see my brother Abinzi, his light dim and him sort of you know go off the rails in that way by hanging out with the wrong crowds getting expelled from school you know talking back to his teachers getting into fights at school was really a massive wake wake up call for my mother because she realized that her family's future was teetering on the brink and somehow through all of that it was a big wake up call for her and she began to draw an inner strength um, that I describe in the book and that's when she began to really be a lot more present and focused in getting us back on track and keeping us focused on anything besides the empty chair at the dinner table. That was a big turning point for us.
0: What rules did she make for the family?
2: Oh my gosh, so many. Um, And she started the rules at that point, but they continued throughout the end of my high school. The first rule was a family book club because her main goal at that point was to keep Binzi on track. Um, as I mentioned, he'd been expelled from school. It's your oldest brother. Yeah. Hmm. That's my oldest brother. And he was, you know, hanging out with the wrong crowds and, you know, he was going off the rails. And so one of the first rules she instilled was a family book club. So that meant that, um, uh, my brothers, especially because they were older. I was only five going on six years old. My brothers, especially, would be assigned to read one book a week and discuss it around the dinner table. And the discussions would usually take place on Fridays. Um, but it was so it was it was so powerful for us because it just gave us something to focus on, besides loss and besides pain, for example. And my mother was, you know a Nigerian, Black, obviously, immigrant woman, single mother now, a widow, raising three black children in a neighborhood that had a lot of problems. And so she really needed to roll up her sleeves, she felt, to keep us on track and to keep us focused.
0: Yeah. You know, one of, one of the things I love about this part of the story is you say that well, you know, while she was an educated person in Nigeria, she didn't have a lot of background in literature. So she starts going to the library and just asking the librarian, you know, what are some classics that, that we should all read? and taking this on herself so that she is prepared to participate, in addition, of course, to holding on to a full-time job and making sure everyone is fed and, and she's pregnant with your, your your soon-to-arrive sister. It's pretty remarkable. Um, you, know, you and your siblings were um, going to school in classes that were overwhelmingly white. Uh, what was your experience like? Did you feel picked on? Did you feel accepted?
2: Well, I would say that it was... Um A mixed bag. So in terms of some of the things that my mother did for me when it came to our education, she at one point asked my teachers for um, the school syllabus for the entire year so she could figure out what I was going to be learning in school in, say, a month or two, for example, and she would teach it to me at home beforehand so that by the time I learned it in school, I already knew it. And that was genius because it had several effects on my sort of, uh, this was in elementary school, but my elementary school experience. Because A, it meant that um, my teachers thought I was much smarter than I actually was because everything that we learned in class, I already knew it because my mother was teaching me in advance at home. But it also meant that my teachers would use me as a role model um, of sorts for the other children. So in one way, you know, being one of the only black girls in my school, because I was shining academically, you know, I sort of... I did feel accepted. However, there were lots of other um, experiences that I had that were that were quite difficult when it came to race. You've got to remember, this is sort of uh, the early 1990s in England, you know, before people were, you know, politically correct. You know, when my parents first arrived in England there was the whole sort of, this is in the 70s, the sort of keep England white movement. Um, and we were far removed from that because we we're in the 1990s, but that still meant that there were issues when it came to racism for my siblings and I. And so that meant it was, um, it was difficult to find acceptance among peers. Chuatel had, again, it was a mixed situation because at times he didn't feel accepted, but because he always, from the age of 13, really thrived as an actor and was the sort of shining star at school as an actor, it meant at times there was acceptance. So it oscillated um, quite a bit for us.
0: Yeah. You know, the story of your mom asking for the syllabus of your elementary school work and then teaching it to you ahead of time. I mean, you described this as being a time when you weren't happy at school, you weren't doing particularly well in school, and it completely turned things around. So it really worked. And I'm just imagining your mom doing this. I mean, she's working all day, running the, the family pharmacy by herself on our feet 10 hours a day. She got a... You know, cook dinner, and then she's got to learn this stuff herself the multiplication tables and the grammar or whatever you're learning and then go over it with you. It's, I mean, hard to imagine the stamina that she summoned to do that.
2: Yeah, she would come back, she would look at my school syllabus, figure out, yes, you know, you're going to be learning the times tables, let's say next month or in two months. And times table by times table, she would sit and teach me beforehand. And I remember the times table experience was such a powerful one for me because it was the first thing that I remember her teaching me. And I remember going to school and while everybody, you know, was just learning their two times table or their three times table, I, had, I already knew my 12 off by heart. And it was just such a simple thing to do to teach your child in advance of what they're learning in school. But it had the most profound impact on me because I learned cause and effect in terms of studying. I understood at that point, this is at seven, seven, eight years old. I understood that, you know, what you put in is what you get out. And seeing the teachers sort of treat me differently, seeing myself sort of given gold stars and various other scholastic awards, just had this amazing impact on my self-confidence. And it really fueled my desire and my drive to come home, roll up my sleeves and study even more.
0: You know, in, in addition to all the other things your mom had to worry about, there was crime. I mean, this was a neighborhood where, you know, there there were there were crimes. Was she directly affected?
2: Yes. So um, my mom, as I mentioned, ran a pharmacy, and it was in a difficult neighborhood. She was robbed at the pharmacy multiple times. And obviously I'm young at the time, so I don't, she's not going to come home and tell me that she was robbed at knife point um, when I'm sort of seven or eight years old. But what's remarkable is that, yes, she did share these stories years later with me. But what's remarkable is that even on those days, even after going to the pharmacy, being robbed at knife point, um, she would still come back with me and she would still study. You know, she would still study. And it's bringing tears to my eyes thinking about it because the sorts of things that she had to, contend with and do battle with and the resilience that she displayed despite all of that is is remarkable it's astounding actually
0: now your brother Chuatel who was the 11-year-old uh, who survived the accident in Nigeria that killed your father eventually comes back and and just showed a, an incredible talent for acting and and takes up studying Shakespeare writes passages from Shakespeare all over his walls and together, your mom, while she truly believed in hard work and academic discipline, was more interested in things, I guess, like law and science than in the arts. But there comes a point at which suddenly she gets it and realizes what a special thing this is. you want to share that with us?
2: There was um, one moment where one of Chotel's teachers persuaded her to watch him in an upcoming school play. I think it was for Measure for Measure. She watched, you know, didn't really understand what was going on. You know, she'd never really been to a Shakespeare play before in her life, but she sat there. And um, at the very end, Chortel came on, you know, after the curtain call and, you know, was bowing to the audience. And she saw the applause, the level of applause in the auditorium, in this all-white, you know, auditorium in South London to see people giving her son the standing ovation for nothing more than, in her mind, acting in a play. She realised there was something special going on there and that she just sort of felt it was her duty to nurture that as much as she could. And she did because of the pride and the joy. You know, I mentioned in the book that Nigerians love the idea of representing our culture well in other sort of environments. Um, That's sort of a big deal for Nigerians. And so seeing my brother sort of honoured in this way and given that kind of acclaim was a big deal for her. And so um, she came back home and she bought herself her first copy of a Shakespeare play, and she read measure for measure. I don't know if she understood what she was reading, but she went through the text slowly, sort of trying to relive her her son's moment on that stage, but also trying to find her own ways to sort of encourage him and push him to be better. It's quite remarkable that she would teach herself Shakespeare in this way um, after seeing my brother perform.
0: Your mom had this idea that you should go to Oxford University. And um, y- you were a good student. But this was a huge mountain to climb academically. You had to have top, tip-top grades. And you had to have recommendations from teachers even to apply. And then the entrance exam process was really brutal. Um, and initially, you know, the high school counselor said, no, you, no yeah, yeah, she's not ready for this. Um, one thing she had to do was get you interested in the idea. How did she do that?
2: Yeah, so um, when you are an immigrant from you know, another country and you get a chance to move to England, um, education becomes almost like a, a fixation because you've been given this lottery ticket to change your family's future. And you, the last thing you want to do is waste that opportunity. And so for my mother, she really believed that Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, places like that were the ticket to a better life. So help her God. I mean, that's really what she believed. And so um, when I was 13, um, she would just sort of, she just wanted to expose me to Oxford University, right? So she would um, put me in the car and her and I would drive together. It was about an hour and a half drive or so from where we lived. And we would just spend the day, maybe just a few hours, just walking around Oxford. Oxford doesn't really have um, a central campus. So the university is folded into the town. And so we would just walk, wander around and, um, we would go every so often. But that again, changed my subconscious belief because there I was this 13 year old girl, I barely even knew what Oxford was or why it was relevant or what its reputation was at all. But just by being there and sort of seeing the people there and and sort of breathing the air in, if you will, um, it sort of began to allow me to dream about the possibility that maybe eventually I could attend this university too. It began to feel normal, almost like I belonged. Um, And then, you know, every single time that I sort of rebelled in my teenage years, which of course I did, you know, when I turned 14, 15, rather than punishing me or grounding me, um, she would take me back to see Oxford, you know, to show me something better to aspire to. So that that was the first thing that she did.
0: Well... In order to do this, in order to even get your teachers to give you the recommendations that you would need to apply, you needed to really get your grades into kind of the elite status. And, you know, you didn't want to put as much time. I mean, you're a teenager. You want to watch TV. You want to talk to your friends on the phone. What did she do to make sure that you put the time in? This is pretty draconian.
2: (laughs) Pretty draconian, yeah. So she, um, one day, um, she was pacing her bedroom and she was just thinking to herself, what can I do? And she'd heard from my teachers that, you know, your child is smart, you know, she does well, but listen, Oxford requires a whole different level in terms of grades and your child really just isn't there yet, but here are some other universities you can go. You can apply to instead. Um, and, you know, coming from Nigeria, she hadn't really heard of the others, you know, even though they were very good. So she had her heart sort of set on Oxford for me. And so she paced her bedroom and she thought to herself, what can I do? What can I do to guarantee that my child is going to go to Oxford University? What can I do? And then she came into my bedroom and she said, oh my God, I've got it. I know exactly what to do to guarantee, guarantee that you are going to go to Oxford University. And I said, what, mum? And she decided to ban me from watching any television whatsoever until I had an actual Oxford acceptance letter in hand. So this would have been roughly around two years, just under two years or so. And, um, you know, it sounds so extreme when I tell this story, but I would say that I am so grateful that she did that because honestly, it worked.
0: You know, the name of the book is "Where the children take us." And I was reading it, and I was thinking, this is really where my mother took me or where <laughs> our mothers take us. But it does come from a moment in the book. Do you want to share that with us?
2: Yes. so um my um my mother obviously had a uh, difficult time fitting in in England and feeling like she was actually um, welcome and uh, belonged, especially as a foreign immigrant coming in in the 1970s. And so she felt quite lonely. I mean, especially also after my father passed away, that loneliness grew louder. And so, um, um, you know, it would have been about nine years ago. My brother was actually um, awarded an OBE by um, the Queen. And that's an award that the Queen gives every year to honour those who have made a difference in a particular chosen field. And, um, you know, we went to Buckingham Palace and um, my mum was there when sort of Prince Charles, she watched from the front row as Prince Charles pinned this golden sort of medal on my brother's lapel. And, um, you know, they sat and they spoke, they stood and they spoke rather, for several moments. And it was just like a really proud moment because my mother, after not fitting in in British society for so long... To be able to go to Buckingham Palace and watch as your son is awarded this medal by the royal family is uh, quite an astounding moment. And she decided that she was going to wear something that was very Nigerian, you know, to show the world that, you know, I'm I'm a proud, strong Nigerian woman. She wore a Nigerian outfit to the ceremony. And um, afterwards, you know, her and my brother were sort of linking arms and she was, you know, wiping away the tears that were streaming down her face. And she turned back to the palace, um, looking at the Queen's residence, and then turned to us and said, you never know where your children will take you. And that is where the title of the book comes from.
0: Well, Zane Asher, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Zane Asher is an anchor for CNN International. She hosts the program One World with Zane Asher, which airs weekdays at noon. Her new memoir is Where the Children Take Us. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support from Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Quenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies.